Good morning. It is good to be here, and we're thankful for the privilege of being able to worship. Looking forward to a great week at camp, and we appreciate, as has already been said and offered, your prayers on our behalf, and uh, particularly for all of the campers. Of course, we go to camp for the campers. We want it to be good for them, and we want them to grow closer to God throughout our time together this week, so we pray that God will be glorified to that end. Samuel Stennett, many years ago, wrote the following familiar words. He wrote, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. We will rest in the fair and happy land by and by just across from the evergreen shore, sing the song of Moses and the Lamb by and by and dwell with Jesus evermore. The writer in that great song, one of my favorites, captures so beautifully the idea of rest. And of course, the basis of that song is found in the children of Israel, the generation that left Egyptian captivity under the leadership of Moses and bound for the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that had been promised to their fathers. Though that land, though that rest in Canaan was certainly before them and within their grasp, of course we know from our study of God's word that that generation was never really able to realize that rest. It's easy, I think, to imagine them as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, often thinking about Canaan, often thinking about the rest that certainly would have awaited them there, often thinking about the goodness that they could have enjoyed as opposed to the wandering and the suffering in the wilderness that they endured because, according to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, of their unbelief and of their disobedience. As we turn our attention this morning to Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, what we notice is that the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 7 begins to reflect upon the rest in the land of Canaan that the children of Israel never were able to see. The book of Hebrews from time to time will stop and will engage in a text that deals with an exhortation for one reason or another. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 all the way through Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 13 makes up the second of five exhortations that are found in the book of Hebrews. The first of which is found in Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 where the Hebrews writer exhorts and warns us and says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The first exhortation is designed to warn against the danger of drifting away from the Word of God through neglecting of the Word of God. The second exhortation, however, the one that we're looking at this morning, deals with the danger of doubting and disbelieving because of a hard heart. You see, in chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 19, the Hebrews writer will emphasize this point, that there was a rest in the land of Canaan, the rest of God, if you will, that was available to the generation of Israelites who left Egypt, and they missed out on their rest because of their hardness of heart, 
because of their rebellion, because of their disbelief. Now, therefore, chapter 4, verse 1 through 10, the text that we're looking at this morning, the writer will say, although they missed their rest, we do not have to miss out on ours. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, the writer picks up again just where he started in chapter 3, verse 7. Just where he left off in chapter 3, verse number, verse number 19, and he, has, he seeks to accomplish two points in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. Number one, he wants to point out that there is a better rest, which makes sense, doesn't it, in light of the book. We're talking about a book that deals with the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is superior to the prophets, we've learned already in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Jesus is superior to the angels, we learn in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4 and following, and into Hebrews chapter 2, excluding that small exhortation in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Jesus is also superior to Moses, we learn in Hebrews chapter 3, the first six verses, and now what we're learning is that the Savior, who is superior to the prophets and the angels and also to Moses, is also one who offers a superior rest. The Hebrews writer wants to emphasize to his readers that though the children of Israel missed out on their rest, we don't have to miss out on ours, and ours is better. Number two, what he seeks to emphasize is the importance of pressing onward. Keep in mind that the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who are struggling. They're thinking about departing. They're thinking about leaving the faith and going back into Judaism, presumably because of persecution and because of discouragement. And yet, in this book, over and over again, the Hebrews writer will emphasize to them, you have a better Savior, you have a better hope, you have a better promise, you have a better high priest. Everything about New Testament Christianity is better and is superior. Look to the previous generation as an example. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 19. Here's the bad example. Here's the example of the generation that left, Israel, that left Egypt and all of their grumbling and all of their complaining and their disbelief and their rebelliousness and their disobedience. You look to them as an example and you press forward so as to not fall into the same trap in which they fell. There remains therefore a rest. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 1 to 10. We'll look at this section in three parts. Number one, there is an admonition. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 1. Number two, there is a warning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 2. And number three, there are assurances given in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3 to 10. Let's look at the text together. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 4, and verse number 1, we have an admonition. The Hebrews writer says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have come short of it. Notice the admonition and the various parts of it in this passage. First of all, there is the basis of our admonition. The writer uses the word, therefore. And naturally, when we see the word, therefore, in Scripture, that takes us back to what came in the passages that led up to this one. So in this particular case, the Hebrews writer is taking our attention back to Hebrews chapter 3, all the uh, beginning in verse number 7. 
where we find a warning first in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 11, which if you remember from our study of this passage several months ago, is a constant warning. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and the idea is that he is continuing to say, he's continuing to speak. It is a warning about the heart, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. It is a warning about the wrath of God, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 11. And then there is an appeal to beware and to exhort and to hold fast and to learn, capped off in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 with a summary statement about their unbelief and their disobedience. So, based on the fact that the children of Israel, based on the fact that they were warned that they had a hard heart, that they were going to experience the wrath of God, and therefore you must beware and exhort and hold fast and learn and not not fall into the same trap of disbelief and disobedience. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1, there is a promise. Notice there is the basis of our admonition, which is the word therefore, everything that came before, and now here is the promise. He says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. Look at the word promise. The word promise has to do with a declaration of something God intends to carry out. And it's interesting to note that the word promise appears more times in the book of Hebrews than in any other book in the New Testament. It appears some 14 times in this book. Based on the fact that we have the generation of the children of Israel as a warning, as a lesson, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. Based on the fact that we have a promise, a declaration of something that God intends to carry out, that promise, by the way, is of rest. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, notice the word remains. The word remains indicates that this rest is still available. Notice the fact that he uses the word rest. It's the same word, the same indicator that he used back in chapter 7, uh, back in chapter 3 and verse number 7 and following, and it takes our attention back to Psalm number 95, which he'll pick up again in just a few moments. That rest is still available. That rest is not affected by Israel's disobedience. We have the basis of our admonition, which is the example of the children of Israel, therefore... We have the content of our admonition, which is there remains a promise of entering into his rest. And now notice what he says. Let us fear. The word fear has the idea of reverence and respect for the word of God in conjunction with an understanding of his power. Notice in the previous section that the writer not only talks about the rest that was available to the children of Israel in Canaan, but he also talks about the wrath of God that they experienced because of their rejection of God. When we talk about reverencing God, it is the idea of having a healthy respect and reverence for God because he is God. But it is also an understanding of the fact that our God, just as he is a God of love and justice, is also a God of wrath. And because of his justice, he must punish those who do evil. And the children of Israel that we just finished studying about in Hebrews chapter 3, they experience the wrath of God. Israel did not fear God, verse 7 and following, and therefore we must. That's the idea of the passage. The admonition of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1 is to learn. 
The admonition of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1 is to remember the example of the generation that went before to note the wrath of God and therefore to fear him, which is to have a healthy respect and a recognition of the power that he has as God. Now notice the warning in verse number 2. There's an admonition in verse 1, and now there's a warning in verse number 2. He says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, being, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Notice that he mentions the gospel, and he says in, of, of note that the gospel was of no profit to Israel. The implication is, what about us? Notice in this passage that contains a warning, first of all, that he mentions gospel. The word gospel has to do with good news. And when he talks about the gospel being preached to that generation, he simply means the good news of the promised land and the constant provision of God that would have been theirs. Naturally, the gospel or the good news of rest in God was preached to them, and the good news of rest in God is proclaimed to us as, is proclaimed to us as well. That good news of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord, that good news of rest which the Christians that were, uh, that, to which this book was addressed were considering turning their backs upon and leaving behind. The good news was preached to them, the writer says, but notice their reaction. He says, although the gospel was preached to them, it did not profit them, meaning it mattered not to them. And why? Because they didn't receive it correctly. You see, the point is that hearing by itself is not enough. Faith comes by hearing the word of God according to Romans chapter 10 and verse number 17. But what the Bible tells us is that when we're going to hear God's word, that hearing is going to fall short if it's hearing all on its own. The language that the writer uses is that of mixing. It's the same word that would be used, for example, to describe like the digestive process. When we eat food, those foods are combined with acids and things that are in our stomachs that aid in the digestive process. And when those things are all mixed together, then the body is able to take the nutrients from the food that we eat and it's able to gain strength from it. See, the point that the Hebrews writer is making is that when we take faith, that when we take faith, we have to, or excuse me, when we take the word of God, we have to mix it with faith. An obedient faith is the idea. And when we're able to do that, then we're able to take out of God's word those things which are necessary to strengthen us and to help us to be the people that God would have us to be. Notice, by the way, if you go back to verse number 18 and 19 of the previous chapter, that the Hebrews writer equates obedience and faith. He asked the question, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that if they could not enter in, it was because of unbelief. Their unbelief is equated with their disobedience. What does that tell me? That tells me that if I hear the word of God and I'm not willing to obey what it says, that I am in the same shoes as the generation of Israel that left the land of Egypt that I've not taken the word of God and mixed it with an obedient faith so that it might produce the result that is intended. You see, the warning of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 2 is intended to ask us about our reaction. They heard the gospel, they heard the good news, but they didn't react to it in a way that was appropriate. We hear the gospel, we hear the good news. The question is, how will we react? But you remember that he's already asked that question, don't you? 
Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 3, the writer asks, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? You see, the application for the readers of this epistle was, you have heard the good news, you have seen the good news, you have heard that which is confirmed. The question is, will you react to it in the same way that your forefathers have reacted to it, or will you react to it in an entirely different way? There's an an admonition in verse number 1, there's a warning in verse number 2, and now there's assurance in verse 3 to 10. The admonition, let us fear. We have the example of the children of Israel in chapter 3, verse 7 to 19. They stand as an object lesson for us because they had an opportunity to enter into rest in the land of Canaan and they missed out on that opportunity. So therefore, let us fear. Let us in reverence serve our God, being mindful of his ability and his power and his wrath so that we don't fall under the same hand of wrath uh, which they fell. Then there's a warning, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 2. Let us fear, verse 1, let us make sure that we hear the word of God and we combine that with an obedient faith. They didn't, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, so we must. But now look at the assurance. He says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... He would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Now let's look at how these passages all work together. First of all, in verse number 3, we have an assertion. He says in verse number 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. I want you to key in on the word rest with me for just a moment, and I want you to notice that rest is used at least three different ways in the context of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4. It is used in reference to God's Sabbath rest, which we'll talk about in a moment. It is used to Israel's rest in Canaan, and it is used by ultimate application to our rest in heaven. And what the Hebrews writer says in this passage is that there is a rest remaining. That's his assertion. There is a rest remaining. Notice the language. For we who have believed do enter that rest. He tells us that there, number one, is a rest remaining, and number two, that that rest remains for those who believe. We've already learned in verse number 2 that those who persist in unbelief cannot see that rest, and so therefore we would do well to believe. But notice that he describes we who have believed, and the grammar that he uses in this passage is worthy of note. 
He uses belief when he says, we who have believed, he is talking about belief that exists over the lifetime of a child of God. It's the idea of being able to look back over a lifetime and seeing faithful obedience as the predominant characteristic of that person. His assertion then is, there is a rest that remains, but it remains only for those who can be characterized as those who are faithful to the Lord. Notice how we keep going back and forth. We have those who didn't in chapter 3. We have those of us who must in chapter 4. We have an admonition to fear in chapter 1 based on their bad example. We have a warning in in verse number 2 based on their bad example. Now we have an admonition in verse number 3 and following in which the Hebrews writer says, Listen, there is a rest, but that rest is only for those who do not follow their example. Well, tell me, how do you know that that rest is still available? In the following verses, he'll offer up four proofs for his statement in verse 4 through 8. Number one, he says at the end of verse 3, going on into verse number 4, he says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. How do you know that there is a rest remaining, as you've said at the beginning of verse number 3? Here's how I know it. Number one, because God began his rest at the conclusion of his creative activity. At the end of verse 2 and in verse, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, the writer quotes back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 2. And the idea is that when God finished creating the world, that God entered into rest. Not that he was resting in the sense that he went to sleep, but that he's resting in the sense that he is enjoying the fruit of his labor. Evidence number 2. Look at verse 5. And again, in this place, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this isn't the first time that he's quoted this passage. In fact, he quoted it back in chapter 3 and verse number 11. And this is a quotation of Psalm 95 and verse number 11. In Psalm 95, the Hebrews writer deals basically, or the writer basically deals with two things. He deals with worship in the first half of Psalm 95, and then he deals with attitudes in the second half. And the idea, of course, is that if you're going to worship God, then you're going to have to worship God with a proper attitude. Well, in Hebrews chapter 3, the Hebrews writer pulled uh, Psalm 95, 11 and applied it to his discussion about the children of Israel who left Canaan. He applied it to his discussion in regard to using the children of Israel who left Canaan as an object lesson to urge the, right, the, the readers of the book of Hebrews to obey, to believe, to continue on in their steadfastness. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 5, what he's telling us is that God was resting during the time of David. In other words, he began his rest after he finished the creative activities in verse 3 and 4, and he was continuing in his rest at the time David wrote Psalm 95 and verse number 11 because David spoke of that rest as something currently in existence. But then look at verse 6 and 7. He says, number 3, that that invitation to rest, it still stands. 
He says, since therefore it remains that some must enter it and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day saying in David, today, after it has been uh, such a long time, as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Again, the emphasis on Psalm 95 and verse number 11, but this time he specifically points out the word today. And here's the significance. For the readers of the book of Hebrews, just as in chapter 3 and verse number 7, when the writer says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, and again in verse number 15 of the same chapter, today, if you will hear his voice, the point is that this Uh, that the Holy Spirit is continuing, even to this present moment, to speak in this way. He takes Psalm 95 and verse number 11 and says, listen, the the, the Holy Spirit is continuing today, even now, to issue this invitation. It's just as applicable now as it was then. And then stop and think just for a moment. Put yourselves in the shoes of David when he wrote these words in Psalm 95. The Holy Spirit originally spoke to the children of Israel after they left Egypt and said, there is a rest that's available to you. By the time David writes Psalm 95, the children of Israel have been in the land of Canaan. That original proclamation is some 400 years old, and yet David could say, there remains a rest. The logical conclusion then is when David wrote in Psalm 95 verse number 11, he wasn't talking about the land of Canaan because they had, been in, they had occupied the land of Canaan for some 400 years by that point. So therefore, in Psalm 95 11, when God said there remains a rest, he must have been talking about something else. He must have been talking about something different. Look closer at the text. We have in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 1, we have an admonition. And the admonition is to learn from the lesson of the generation of the past and fear. In verse number 2, we have a warning. And the warning is to not be disobedient. In verse 3 and following, we have an assurance. And the assurance is there is a rest remaining, but that rest only remains for those who are faithful to the Lord. And then he goes on to prove his assertion, his assertion that a rest remains. How do we know there's a rest? Number one, we know because God began resting when he completed his creative activity. Number two, we know because God was resting during the time of David, verse number five, he continued his rest. Number three, we know because today the invitation still stands, verse six and seven. Today, he says, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That invitation to rest is still available. Number four, we know because in verse number eight, Joshua's rest When Joshua led the children of Israel over the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan, that rest was only temporary. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. Joshua led the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. It was Joshua who led them in their conquest of the land of Canaan, and it was Joshua who oversaw the settlement of all of the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. And yet, when all of that was over, the Hebrews writer says Joshua was speaking of something that still existed yet in the future. 
So then the question is, what rest are we talking about? And that's where the conclusion of all of this comes in in verse 9 and 10. You have the admonition, learn from the past and fear. You have the warning, be obedient. You have the, uh, you have the assurance, the rest still remains. And now you have the conclusion, verse 9 and 10. He says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered into his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Two parts. First, verse 9. The Hebrews writer uses a word in the Greek New Testament that has never before been used before this occasion in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9. When the Hebrews writer says there remains therefore a rest, he uses a word and the word is this. Sabbatismos. He takes the word Sabbath and he takes the word rest and he connects them together. And sometimes we refer to it as a Sabbath rest. And the idea, of course, is not that we're going to rest on the Sabbath day or that Sabbath keeping is still in vogue. That's not the idea here at all. What he's doing is he's taking the concepts of rest that he's just discussed in the verses previous beginning with the rest of God at the conclusion of, of his creative activity and extending on through the rest that David mentioned and that Joshua mentioned. He puts all of those things together and he says there is this great rest that is better than those rests that we've discussed previously and that rest we know as heaven. And then he tells us in verse number 10 why all of this is possible. And he says it's possible because Christ has finished his work and entered into his rest. For he himself, that's talking about Jesus, has entered his rest who also ceased from his work. What is his work? Well, his work was Calvary. Notice how the Hebrews writer is beginning now to transition. The next major section after this, once he gets to verse number 14, will be describing the work of Jesus as the great high priest. He's already talked about him being superior to the prophets and being superior to angels and being superior to Moses. Now he's telling us that he has a rest to give to the people of God and that rest is superior. Then he's going to tell them that he's a greater and a superior high priest who has offered a superior sacrifice and it is that superior sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be able to enter into the presence of God. And in application to what we're looking at in Hebrews 4, verse 1 to 10, it is that superior sacrifice that makes it possible for us to enter into heaven with God where, notice, he already has entered. Hebrews 4, verse 10. So in this passage, the Hebrews writer, the Hebrews writer talks about some things that are challenging but also some things that are vastly, vastly encouraging. There is the admonition to fear. Remember the lesson of the past. They had rest right in front of them, but they weren't able to enter it. And the reason is because of their rebelliousness and their disbelief and their disobedience. They didn't fear God. You fear Him. Then there's a warning. They heard the Word of God they heard the pleading of God. They heard the promise of God to enter into the land of Canaan and to be provided for and to, to live in, in goodness and blessing. 
but they didn't mix what they heard with an obedient faith. You don't do the same. You listen and you obey what you hear. And then there is this great assurance. They had the opportunity to enter into rest and they forfeited their opportunity, but their disobedience does not ruin it for everyone. There still remains a rest for the people of God and we know that because of four different lines of proof, four different lines of evidence. God entered into rest after his creative activity. There was still a rest, a still an invitation to rest whenever David wrote in Psalm 95. Whenever Joshua entered into the land of Canaan and spoke of a rest, he wasn't speaking only of Canaan. He was speaking of something that's far into the future, beyond Canaan, far greater than the land of Canaan. And the Hebrews writer says that invitation is still available even today, but it's only available for those who obey. So this great invitation to enter into rest and to be with our Lord in heaven forever is an invitation that is extended to every human being on the planet. But they have to be willing to answer the call. They have to be willing. We have to be willing to answer the invitation unlike the generation that left Israel or that left Egypt we've got to answer in obedience At the end of this passage the hebrews writer makes mention of jesus and makes mention of his sacrifice when we think about the sacrifice of jesus that makes life and makes rest possible of course we recognize that jesus shed his blood for the sins of all humanity and that that blood is available to wash away the sins of all humanity. But first, we must respond to him. We must believe in him and his deity. We must repent of our sins and confess our faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Then the Lord will add us to the church and then we'll be, we'll be, we'll be part of his family. We'll be his children. And then the rest that remains, the invitation to enter into rest, will be ours. This morning, the invitation is offered, and if you have need, if you're subject to the invitation, we invite you to come as we stand and sing together.